Moncrief on News Talk. Now, as you probably know, last week the International Court of Justice heard submissions from South Africa and Israel, with South Africa alleging that the Israeli military action against Gaza amounts to genocide. But what is the technical definition of genocide and what evidential bar would South Africa have to reach to prove its case? Ray Murphy is Professor at the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the University of Galway. Good afternoon, Ray. Uh, good afternoon, Sean, and good afternoon to your listeners. Uh, so what would be the, uh, the the definition of what genocide is and how does that differ from other things like, say, ethnic cleansing? Yeah, that's it's a good question, Sean. And the term genocide was first used in 1994, sorry, 1944, after the Second World War by um, Raphael Lemkin, a Polish-Jewish uh, academic, and he had been advocating for the adoption of an international treaty which would define genocide. And this was to reflect uh, the extermination of six million Jews during the Second World War and something that captured the magnitude and seriousness of, of, the, 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 of a crime of that nature. And uh, so uh, the, we now have the Genocide Convention and we have a definition which has been reenacted in various international treaties since then. And essentially, the convention defines genocide as specific acts intended to destroy a group based on nationality, ethnicity, race or religion. And that includes uh, killing members of the group, of course, causing serious bodily or mental harm, imposing conditions on the group calculated to destroy the group. But the distinguishing feature and the, the real uh, challenge with proving genocide is to establish and prove beyond a reasonable doubt of an intent to destroy a group, mm. as opposed to you know uh, attacking the group or you know for ethnically cleansing the group by moving them or displacing them, but the intent to destroy. And his, uh, historically, we have a number of examples of, of this. Yeah. So 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 then in in uh, for the for the South African case. The, uh, part of their case was to prove that intent, and uh, no, would that cover things like public statements or, or internal documents and that, things of that nature? Yes, um, I mean this. Uh, the the South African case is interesting because it's uh, it's not really the, the the case brought by South Africa before the International mm. Court of Justice against Israel is interesting because it's a case brought by one state against another. And one of the key elements in proving, in attempting to prove genocide before the International Court of Justice last week were public statements made by a range of Israeli politicians and uh, members of the Knesset uh, and other leaders uh, within Israel, which clearly, which I think were compelling evidence of incitement to genocide. And, you know, historically, that's one of the key pieces of evidence that you look for in establishing that genocide is either taking place or has taken place. What are the public statements by leaders, political leaders, military leaders, or civil society or whatever, what have they said which may support the intention to destroy? Mm. And there have been very significant statements made, among them uh, statements to the effect that we're dealing with we're, we're dealing with animals, not human beings. Uh, we must burn uh, and destroy everything, uh, and a range of other really incendiary statements, which, which in fact, the Attorney General warned politicians in particular not to be making such public statements, uh, because the Attorney General was aware that 
uh, a case of this nature was w- would most likely be brought. Right. Okay. And but if if you say, well, politician X, Y, and Z said these things in Israel, uh, does that also have to be the case that those politicians have to have some sort of influence over? the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces, because they're taking orders. If some, you know, some politician says something crazy from a small party, it doesn't necessarily follow the IDF are going to follow that line. No, that's a fair comment. And I mean, I'm not going to name anybody over the airwaves, <laughs> yes. but we could take the same over the, uh, in our own uh, doll. You know, some, hmm. some strange statements have been made by certain parliamentarians over the years, and you can't attribute responsibilities to the government for, for those statements. However, in this instance, uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has made statements. In particular, the Defence Minister Gallant has made statements, uh, very extreme statements in relation to the Palestinians and others. I mean, it's a coalition government there, and it's it's an extreme extreme right wing government, uh, members of which have made these types of statements. So they are leaders of the current government. The Minister for Defence, in particular, would have a direct impact on what the Israeli Defence Forces uh, would do on the ground. So you can't dismiss this by fringe elements within the Israeli Knesset or within the Israeli body politic. It's, it's coming from members of the government and others with authority and influence. Yeah, so, so the, the case last week uh, presented by South Africa, I assume it included some statements like that. Um, also, I assume actions by the IDF and, and, and linking them together. It did, yes. Um, they played a number of statements uh, in the courtroom itself, uh, and um, they even had, um, you know, I've watched so much uh, in relation to this conflict that I sometimes, you know, confuse myself. But mm. uh, if, I, if I'm correct, the, the court played a particularly damning statement, a reference to a biblical uh, Amalek, which ministers wouldn't be really be aware of, but this is a reference to where God instructed the Israelites to kill everybody, every man, woman, and child, and every beast of burden, donkey, uh, all the cattle, etc., of a particular group in the, in the Old Testament. And this was invoked by, of all people, the Prime Minister. And, you know, the, the Israelis later claimed that this was taken out of context, but really that's a very, that's, that doesn't... That's not a real defense. And then we saw soldiers, uh, IDF soldiers in the field, dancing among themselves, um, chanting Amalek, Amalek. And clearly this was influenced by what the Prime Minister said. And Amalek has a well-known meaning and context in the uh, the history of of Israel, uh, biblically and otherwise. So the idea that this didn't have an impact, I think, is unsustainable. These statements had a real impact, a direct impact. Mm. Uh, So uh, it, it, it was a very compelling case. Now, I'd be honest, I'm not the most unbiased of observers. Like, like anybody, I have my own views on uh, the rights and wrongs of this particular uh, issue. But I'd have to say the presentation of the case by the South African legal team was really excellent. Mm. And watching the presentation of the case and defense by the Israeli team, I think was much weaker. Uh, and I'm just speaking now objectively as a lawyer without my own personal input as to how I feel on the issues. Yeah, OK. And, and why, why did you feel that it was that the Israeli case was weaker? Well, in the first case, I felt you don't need to be a great lawyer. I mean, I think most of the world had great sympathy for Israel when it was attacked 
on October the 7th, and those barbarous acts were committed against Israeli civilians and others. And Israel sought, sought to play this and manipulate this particular um, uh, atrocity in order to justify its actions in, in, in Gaza. And it's like saying, well, we suffered we suffered incredible suffering and we were the subject of uh, uh, atrocities. So uh, for this reason, we're justified in doing whatever is necessary um, in this instance to, to, to take on Hamas. And it's like essentially saying, well, one violation justifies another violation. And of course, that's no defense in law. It's no defense in morality either. Mm. Uh, and so I felt that that is a central tenet of their, of their defense was extremely weak. Yeah. Now, are, are these kind of genocide cases, are, are they a, a regular occurrence, semi-regular occurrence? No, they're very rare because it's so like one of the weaknesses of the Genocide Convention is that it was drafted in a way which would make it very difficult to prove genocide. And that was not by accident, because when the major powers and states agreed to adopt this convention, they were aware that perhaps if they weren't careful, they might end up being accused of genocide themselves. So the definition is very is very narrow. It's difficult to prove. I mean, everybody I think listening would be aware of the genocide that took place in Rwanda in the early 90s mm. because of the, you know, and then there's Bosnia-Herzegovina, there's the genocide in, the, in Cambodia back in the 1970s. More recently then, we've had acknowledgement that what the Yazidis in Iraq and have suffered would, would constitute genocide, and uh, something you be, be more would be quite familiar with. There is very substantial evidence of genocide taking place as we speak in Sudan right now. Mm, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, and you know, a similar case to this was brought by uh, the Gambia against Myanmar in the way that the the Myanmar regime, military regime, are treating the Rohingya minority. And, of course, a case was brought against Russia relatively recently, arising from its aggression against Ukraine um, uh, uh, fairly recently. So, and in both of those cases, the court did issue provisional measures uh, uh, calling in particular on Russia to halt its hostilities and its aggression against Ukraine. And as we all know, of course, that call by the International Court of Justice to Russia has been ignored. Yeah, of course. How, how long is it likely to take for the ICJ to come to a, a, a verdict on this? Um, well, and it's important to point out that South Africa bringing this case is seeking immediately an order for provisional measures. And provisional measures, to simplify it, are a temporary order from the court to Israel to cease its hostilities in Gaza and permit, for example, humanitarian aid immediately to the starving, suffering uh, Palestinian civilian population. So that should, that should, we should have a decision on that within weeks. But a decision on what's called the merits of the case, whether or not genocide has been proven before the International Court of Justice, those cases, and this will not be any exception, it's not because it's, it's Israel and, and Palestine, those cases take a number of years before the final decision uh, declaring whether genocide has taken place will take, I would say, up to four years. Oh, my word, yeah. Of course, That's the thing why is... the provisional measures are so important, because yeah. everybody realises that it's, it's about the provisional measures. And I, I, I think there's 
there's a really strong, compelling case has been made by South Africa, but that even though they may not change things on the ground, mm. will be a very significant legal and political and indeed moral victory for South Africa, but most importantly of all for the poor Palestinian civilians suffering at present. Yeah. A, a difficulty, I suppose, is that outside of, you know, you can have legal definitions and, and when they're arrived at that may have some international moral weight, but the the real politics seems to be that you know that that, that uh, various countries are are very happy to accuse each other of breaking international law when it suits them whilst also breaking international law themselves occasionally yeah and i mean one of the things that i find as a lawyer that is is outrageous is the selective nature with which international law is invoked. And I am, I'll be honest, ashamed of the response of many of our European partners towards the conflict that's taking place uh, and the failure to call out the atrocities being perpetrated by Israel. Now, that's a personal view. But at the weekend, we heard the Americans and indeed the British, and in particular, they say the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, he's He's accused the Houthi regime of violating international law, and he says they cannot be allowed to get away with this. They cannot, you know, impunity is unacceptable, so we're going to bomb them. Mm. Uh, and it, it's not surprising. Like, South Africa has huge influence within what's called the Global South. And from the very, from the very beginning of the war in Ukraine to the present day, the Global South see the hypocritical uh, nature with which uh, the, the, the global north and the major industrial powerful economic states invoke international law when it suits them and disregard international law when it doesn't suit them. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and I suppose uh, um, the, the support for uh, Ukraine from the global south was kind of indicative of that for precisely yes. those kind of reasons. You know, and, and, you know, any reasonable person examining the situation, you can't blame them. I mean, there isn't, you know, the system isn't fair. And like, for me, the problem isn't the law. The problem, it's not international law. It's not the definitions. The problem is that the system is broken. It doesn't work. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's based on the power and influence of particular states. And if, if there's a finding against Israel, it's going to be enormously embarrassing for the United States, which is the state most complicit in what's happening in Israel. But to be honest, many European states, and I don't include Ireland in this because we have spoken out, but many major European states are also complicit for not calling out Israel to cease its operations and to cease uh, the death and destruction that is being um, invo- that is that is happening in, in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, there's probably not much that can be done other than uh, of speaking out publicly against these things, right? You know, the, the, a system of international sanctions would seem to be all but impossible to uh, bring into existence. Yeah, uh, because even like the International Court of Justice is the most prestigious and authoritative international court in existence. It is, it is uh, part of the United Nations. Uh, and so it's linked to the other organs of the United Nations. And really, when, a, when the court comes at a, a finding, it should be able to send it to the Security Council uh, and it should be able to adopt a resolution um, seeking to enforce the finding of the International Court of Justice uh, and seeking compliance with this particular finding. But we all know that that's going to be, if, it, if something like that did happen, it's going to go before the Security Council as it currently is constituted mm. and it will 
it'll be vetoed by the United States and possibly other, uh, other countries as well. Ray, thanks a million for speaking with us today. That was uh, Professor Ray Murphy there from the Irish Centre for Human Rights at the, the University uh, of Galway. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.